0: Today, in understanding immigration, the northern border. As expected, the less the federal government focuses on the northern border, the more people are taking advantage of it. And
1: obviously, the southwest border is still the priority. That's where the majority of
2: foot and vehicle traffic is coming from. But this does seem like kind of a blind spot. They found all this marijuana in a commercial shipment. And these storage containers. And this was worth $20 million in estimated street value. And it was the largest narcotic seizure ever recorded on the Northern border.
0: Coming, Coming to you from, from Washington, Washington DC, you are now listening to FAIRS, Understanding Immigration Podcast.
1: Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of FAIRS, Understanding Immigration Podcast. This is Preston Hennikins of FAIRS lobbying team. And I'm joined as always by our research director, Spencer Rayleigh, and Matthew Trager from our media shop. We have another interesting immigration topic that does not seem to get the level of attention it deserves, our less famous northern border with Canada. Today, we'll go over that border's history and compare and contrast it with our southern border. Uh, But before we dive into that discussion, um, we've got one uh, immigration headline to to talk about. We recently passed the 19th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. The 9-11 Commission found in its report that stronger immigration enforcement would be crucial to stopping any further terrorist attacks, and that our weak enforcement laws partially led to the ease with which the terrorists were able to carry out their plot that killed 2,977 people and injured over 25,000 more. So, Matthew and Spencer, I wanted to quickly get a sense from both of you what you think the United States has learned since 2011 and what steps you think. Uh, that we still have to take
2: in order to prevent such an attack from occurring again. Right. So this was obviously a horrific and tragic event that changed our nation forever. I mean, we could have predicted this given our lax immigration policies at the time and, you know, our failure to enforce our laws. And it really exposed our nation to these types of risks. And since 9-11, the nation has really tried to reform our immigration and national security laws. And I think the biggest change that we've seen is the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And within this large federal agency, there's the TSA, which is the Transportation Security Administration. And as we know, you go to airports now, you see them uh, scanning passengers, scanning luggage, and making sure that our flights are really you know, secure and safe. And it's just unbelievable that we had nothing kind of in place before that, before the 9-11 attacks. But despite a change like this, I mean, there's a lot that needs to be reformed. I mean, as we've touched on in previous episodes, more than 15 states plus D.C. grant driver's licenses to legal uh, aliens, and you simply can't be having that. And as the 9-11 Commission report said, the driver's licenses for these hijackers were as powerful as weapons. And now you have states granting driver's licenses to people we know little about. So I don't understand that. And again, there's still no uh, widespread national use of a biometric entry-exit system. So we're not really knowing when people overstay their visas, which account for practically half of our illegal alien population, you know, we're losing track of these people. And this is exactly what happened with these 9-11 terrorists. You know, a few of them overstayed their visas, and we just were not aware of that. So there's been some good change since 9-11 with our national security and immigration uh, laws, but there's still a lot to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you covered most of the main points really well, Matthew. You know, another thing that hasn't been fully implemented that needs to happen is real ID. You know, and that just verifies, you know, that people are who they say they are and creates additional guidelines to uh, help prevent driver's license from getting into the hands of bad actors who, you know, might commit another 9-11 or some other terrorist attack. And the the deadline for that keeps getting pushed back again and again and again. And of course, it's been pushed back again due to COVID. So it's well past time to go ahead and, and and set a deadline stick to it make sure that driver's licenses are going to those who are as Matthew noted legally allowed to have them but also that you know a, a thorough background check is you know being done as well before issuing them
1: yeah and that's that's a great point both with the emphasis on real ID and on the entry exit system you know these are two things that are written into law, but that for whatever reason, Congress just keeps pushing, you know, kind of kicking the can down the road. Um, They've allowed states to not really enact real ID for so long. And really only just now are some states even pursuing changing their, you know, identification requirements to match that that legislation. So we've certainly come a long way since 9-11, but there's still, a tremendous, tremendous amount that we have to accomplish um, since then. So, let's now dive into in today's main topic, which is our northern border with Canada. It is, you know, most famous for being the longest international border between two countries, uh, and it's remarkably unmilitarized and largely unprotected in the sense that are there are really few real barriers to vehicle and foot traffic between the two countries. Spencer, I want to start with you. Tell us a little more about the history of our shared border with Canada and give our listeners a sense of how this boundary is different from the one that we share with Mexico.
0: Thanks, Preston. And like you already mentioned, I think a lot of people don't realize that the United States land border with Canada is actually the longest in the world. If you count the border between Canada and Alaska, it tops 5,525 miles. And if you just count the Lower 48s border with Canada that comes out to just under 4,000 miles, so it's a substantial amount of area, and despite this, it is actually there's actually very little protection on the U.S. border with Canada. There's no substantial border wall or exclusion zone, and in most areas, people can build or construct structures as close as 20 feet from the international border. And in thousands of miles in the most remote areas, there's nothing more than just occasional sensors along the border zone. So, you know, unless potential illegal aliens or illicit trade smugglers trip those sensors, they can move freely between the two countries with little risk of detection. So, compared to all the focus you get on the southern border, you know, we have hundreds of miles of wall already built, Trump has pledged to try to have another 500 completed by the end of this year, Uh, the northern border is getting relatively little attention. And this is interesting because if you look back at the history of the northern border, going back to the 20s and 30s during Prohibition and the years following, there are actually far more agents placed on the northern border than our southern border with Mexico due to the large prevalence of liquor smuggling at the time, interestingly enough. And it wasn't until the late 40s and early 50s that that focus shifted back to the southern border to combat the rising tide of illegal immigration coming from Central and South America. You know, another interesting thing, and I guess you could uh, pretty easily predict it with us reducing the presence on the northern border. In fact, it's been reduced to the point that only about 10% of of border patrols are placed on the northern border at any given time you're starting to see a lot more you know more apprehensions at the northern border you're seeing a lot more you know more and more news stories of large drug busts or people that have been you know running an illicit trade between the borders with very little interference for years now for example along the uh the border from Maine to Washington there were 1,586, uh, excuse me, the border from you know Maine and Canada, there were 1,586 illegal crossers apprehended in 2019. And interestingly enough, a plurality of those, uh, nearly 450, were actually Mexican, and many more were from Central and South America. And the strategy behind this is simple. It's getting more difficult to cross the southern border thanks to a lot of the measures that President Trump has put into place. So it is actually easier for a lot of potential illegal aliens to fly to Canada, find an area where that's remote and there are very few border patrol agents, and then cross there. And of course during the summer months especially, the weather is a lot more hospitable to those who are, you know, trying to cross the border versus trying to do it in southern Arizona or New Mexico, where it's 115 degrees. So as expected, the less the federal government focuses on the northern border, the more people are taking advantage of it. And there's really little reason to expect that to get better in the future if nothing is done about it. Yeah. And and that's a great way
1: to transition to you, Matthew. It really seems like we don't hear a lot about Drug trafficking through the northern border, or human smuggling through the northern border. You know, have there has there really been uh, a media focus on that border in any significant way compared to what we see on an almost daily basis coming from
2: our southwest border? Yeah, not really at all. I mean, it's very limited. You know, when I've been researching this topic uh, for years now, it's always very hard to find news uh, surrounding this issue. Kind of the illicit drug trade or um, human smuggling from Canada to the U.S. But I kind of want to touch on something that Spencer brought up about the Mexican migration occurring in recent years. And um, there's an interesting associated, uh, associated press report in May that talked about how many Mexicans are coming up to Canada just through a flight from Mexico to Canada. And then they'll get, they'll hire a human smuggler to smuggle them into the U.S. because it is cheaper It is safer and it's practically much easier than doing this at the southwest border when obviously there's a lot more restrictions going on. And in 2016, Canada actually lifted its visa requirements for Mexican citizens to bolster their relationship with Mexico. So it's really quite easy for a Mexican national to fly into a major city in Canada. And then, as we've talked about today, there's not really much border patrol presence on the northern border. So it's pretty easy to migrate across from up north into the US. To put us in a better perspective, the number of Mexican uh, border crossers that have crossed from Canada into the US in the past three years has gone up from 3.6% in 2016 to 28% in 2019. So that's a huge surge. And again, I don't think that this number is going to be falling anytime soon. I, as Spencer mentioned too, you know, it's a lot of our attentions at the Southwest border and Again, I think people are starting to find alternative routes to get into the United States. And another interesting thing I I saw in the media was an NBC report that talked about how a particular section of the northern border with Canada called the Swanton sector, which is a border or which borders New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, kind of in the Northeast there, they're seeing humongous surges here. And it makes me believe this is because there's a lot of Canadian cities, large ones around this area. You have Montreal, Ottawa, Uh, Toronto. And so people from whether it's Mexico, Central America, wherever, are flying into these cities, because they've, you know, large airports. um, And, you know, I assume the cheap or the flights are cheaper, and then potentially migrating down into the US. Now, I will say it's not just limited to migration and illegal apprehensions. I mean, some of the largest drug busts, drug seizures that we've seen by the Border Patrol and by CBP have occurred at the northern border. Um, In June... Uh, this past year in 2020, CBP officers seized 9,472 pounds of marijuana at the Peace Bridge Cargo Facility, which is kind of a facility on on the Northern border, but they found all this marijuana in a commercial shipment in these storage containers. And this was worth $20 million in estimated street value. And it was the largest narcotic seizure ever recorded on the Northern border. So again, it's not just limited to, to people, migrating it's also you know there is uh, a rampant drug problem uh, still occurring at the northern border and you know the fact that as Spencer said we only have about 10 percent of our patrol border patrol up there at any given time you know I think we'd like to see that increase.
0: Yeah just to piggyback on what you're saying there you know it, it really again if you look at this from try to put yourself in the perspective of a potential drug smuggler it's getting more and more difficult to run your operations on the southern border. And, you know, that's in large part thanks to many of the reforms that the Trump administration has put in place, whether it's actually improving the wall in sections, building new entire sections of wall, improving infrastructure, putting more Border Patrol agents down there, having the National Guard assist in some areas where necessary. It makes sense that a lot of these drug smugglers are thinking, hey, how can i continue to make a lucrative amount of money and you know continue this international drug trade oh i'll just go to canada and run it there there are large areas that are either urban it's easy to fly into or you can go to where it's extremely remote and there's very little to stop cross country you know illegal traveling between the united states and canada In fact, all you have to do is, you know, Google some of the border locations of the United States and Canada. It's nothing more than just forest on either side with a 20 to 100 foot area cleared out. No fencing whatsoever. You just have to get from one side of the trees to the other. And it's extremely difficult for Border Patrol to then track people, whether on foot or from the air, because it is dense forest. It is rough country. And it's just difficult to keep tabs of those who are moving illegally between the two countries.
1: Yeah, and especially for illegal aliens that do have some money, it certainly makes sense, especially if they're trying to reach some of the northern cities, you know, like Minneapolis, New York City, Boston. It certainly makes more sense to just fly into Canada and then attempt to enter through the northern border Where, like Spencer said, you know, you probably have a
2: significantly lower chance of encountering CBP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's a trend that we're going to be seeing in the upcoming years where it just, you have so many people wanting to immigrate to the country, especially through uh, Mexico or people from Mexico, people from Central America. And with the Southwest border so locked up, right now with a lot of our restrictions, I mean, people are going to find any way to immigrate, whether legally or illegally, and perhaps take Canada as the alternative route now.
1: Right. And so do either of y'all think that there's something more the federal government can do either through legislation or something that maybe CBP could do in terms of just reallocating resources? Obviously, the southwest border is still the priority. That's where the majority of foot and vehicle traffic is coming from. Uh, but this does seem like kind of a blind spot and international conditions can change relatively quickly. And if we've seen how it, certain immigration policy has then caused a certain reaction from human and drug smugglers in, you know, South and Central America, they may look at this and say, What, you know, why wouldn't we just try to come through? through Canada if they're able to do that. So I don't know if, if y'all have any ideas on what we could be doing to, to secure that border more than
2: we already have. Yeah, I, I don't think building a, a northern border wall would be feasible or really effective. I mean, that would take obviously a lot more resources in the southern border. But I think one thing that we can do is, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but perhaps pressure the Canadian government to place visa restrictions or have additional visa requirements for Mexican nationals. I know they lifted that requirement in 2016, but you know I think that's gonna fuel more people to come from Mexico to Canada. And we're already seeing it. Like I said, it's gone from roughly 3.6% in 2016 of Mexicans being apprehended at the Northern border coming into the US to 28% last year. So we're seeing literally a, a direct relationship between when they waive those visa requirements and then the number of people from Mexico being apprehended. So if we could pressure Canada somehow, whether I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that, obviously. But, you know, kind of saying, that, like, hey, look, this is incentivizing illegal immigration into our country. And, you know, we prefer if you don't do that. But I think that would probably be the most realistic and first step to do.
0: Yeah. And just to kind of add to that, you know, we saw steps like that taken by the U.S. government with Mexico to help encourage them to take the illegal alien caravan van situation seriously. And so they started mm-hmm. cracking down on illegal immigration at their southern border, so there's precedent to show that measures like that are effective. Other things are really simple. You know, there has been a uh, an attempt to hire a large number of new Border Patrol agents to put them on the southern border. It would be great to see that happen for the northern border as well. There are some areas that are high traffic where I know it might sound a bit laughable to build a wall with Canada, but there are areas where, if nothing else, some basic fencing Mm-hmm. Would play a huge role in slowing down illegal migration, just especially in some of the more rural uh, some of the more urban areas there on the border with Canada as well. and just I- increasing the amount of technology we have on the northern border. Like I had mentioned earlier, there are sensors in some areas, but they're few and far between. And with the you know understaffed uh, areas there on the northern border, by the time you get an alert that someone or something tripped the sensor, you get a border agent out there, it's often way too late. It can be hours later. Artificial intelligence is improving to the point where we can tell the difference between a, you know, a deer or a moose or a bear <laughs> tripping the sensor and a human. And little things like that can make a world of difference. And these are mm-hmm. not necessarily high cost or high effort things that can, you know, make a large improvement on the northern border. It just needs to become a priority.
1: Right. And it also, it it certainly helps that we have such a strong working relationship with the Canadian Royal Mounted Police that handle their border security, which is something that we haven't necessarily had with Mexico uh, until recently, um, as both of y'all have brought up with their increased Border enforcement of their southern border. But, you know, it it helps to have that working relationship already in existence. And I know that CBP works with their Canadian counterparts quite frequently. And so it's good that any any kind of effort that we would have to step up security and making sure that especially things like drug smuggling are brought down, that's beneficial to both countries. And I would be shocked if our Canadian counterparts didn't want to help us beef up that effort.
2: Right. And I'll also add, you know, as much as we can reform our border security at the northern border, you know, we can also reform a lot of our domestic policies. You know, we got to reduce the sanctuary cities, uh, mandate you verify, stop allowing states to grant driver's licenses and in-state tuition to illegal immigrants. I mean, those are all magnets for people to migrate to the U.S. So a lot of this, you know, we can ask the Canadians to help, but it's also, you know, a lot of our open borders politicians and lawmakers, they're incentivizing these people to come. So I think there's that aspect of the the fight, too. All right. Well, I
1: think that's as good a point to end on as any. Um, and That's really all the time that we have today. But we hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and learned something new about our northern border with Canada. Remember that all of our episodes are available on most media platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can also visit our website, fairus.org and our Twitter handle at Fair Immigration to access these episodes. As a personal favor to the three of us, we ask that you share this podcast with your friends, family, or anyone who you think would enjoy it. We hope each and every one of you are continuing to stay safe and sound in these trying times. And until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by Fair.